Welcome listeners to Baby Brain, PPSM's podcast. I'm Samantha Hugalay, your host. March is Sleep Awareness Month, and with me today is a very special guest, Dr. Emran Kawaja. He's a board-certified psychiatrist and sleep medicine specialist. He's currently a clinical professor at the University of Oklahoma and has had previous appointments at the University of North Dakota, the University of Minnesota, and Baylor College of Medicine. In addition, he's the course director for the American Psychiatric Association Sleep Medicine Program. Welcome, Emron. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me here, Samantha. So that's a pretty impressive introduction, and people might think that I just did a Google search and like plucked your name off of the top of the list. But mm-hmm. in full disclosure, we've actually known each other for about 20 years. That is true. You were, that is true. You were the first collaborative psychiatrist I worked with when I came out of graduate school. I know a couple of things that you have a pretty deep commitment to your patients and that you are a great supporter of nurse practitioners, nurses in general, and that you have had your own journey with young kiddos at home. So I'm excited to hear about what kind of tips we can offer to new moms in their sleep. Sure. Mm -hmm. First, tell us about your journey to sleep medicine. No, I mean, uh, I was actually working as a psychiatrist for several years after finishing my residency that got me interested into sleep medicine. Actually, I was at University of Minnesota and we had to, uh, and this is a real story. We had, I had to supervise one of the residents to do a case presentation and a grand rounds. And the case was of a patient who was uh, in his seventies or eighties at that time and developed parasomnia or sleepwalking episode where in the middle of the night, just got up and started stabbing his wife in a sleepwalking episode. And he was arrested and he was admitted to inpatient psychiatric facility. Fortunately, I mean, the wife didn't get injured. It was since he was in an episode of sleepwalking, he didn't have good coordination. So she didn't get hurt. So that got me really interested because as psychiatrists, a lot of psychiatrists, mental health providers, we are not trained in sleep medicine that much. Whereas most of the patients we see, Uh, have problems with sleep, either it's depression, anxiety, ADHD, a lot of other psychiatric problems. Most of the patients we see have sleep problems. So that got me interested and I thought I'm going to do a fellowship. And I was fortunate enough to get into uh, the Mayo Clinic Fellowship, which is really good fellowship in sleep medicine. And and since then have been in academic medicine at University of Minnesota, and then have been uh, at UT Southwestern and University of Oklahoma. But now I have my own private practice and I still teach at these universities. So it was a real story. It was just something which got my attention that sleep is so important. And there's so many sleep disorders, which if, if we treat, it can really have a very good impact, positive impact in one's emotional and physical health. How do you think sleep deprivation affects parents with new babies? Well, that's a very good question because sleep deprivation uh, can play havoc in anybody even if it's parents, kids, teenagers. So if you're talking about parents and they are sleep deprived because they have a young baby at home, they have to feed the baby, the baby is waking them up, that can cause a lot of problems as far as their mood is concerned, number one. But then also if they're sleep deprived, they're not gonna be able to have good executive functions. You wanna have proper sleep to be able to function the best. For example, just imagine if if a child, two, three-year-old child, uh, they are like traveling or they don't get any sleep, they're going to be very cranky. Similarly, as adults, we're not going to feel very good. If we are sleep deprived, we make more mistakes. We are more cranky. It affects the relationship with our spouses and others. So there are studies actually suggesting that in in residents among uh, people who go through residency, if they're sleep deprived, they have more conflicts at work. So, this, so sleep deprivation has no 
good side effects. I think they kind of refer to that as mommy brain when the, <laughs> when the executive functioning is affected with new babies exactly. waking them up. Exactly, exactly. And I know both you and your wife are professionals. And so you're also no stranger to waking up in the middle of the night and running on very little sleep. So yeah. do you have any advice on how to cope with broken sleep when you have little kids at home? Yes. So if uh, you're struggling with broken sleep and you're having problems because you have to wake up multiple times, the key thing is you want to maybe create some periods where there's some respite where somebody else can take care of the uh, baby and you can catch up during the week, maybe one or two days on the weekends so that your brain is catching up. Now, we do need sleep uh, on a 24-hour basis. So for example, if our need one person's need is eight hours, you're going to need eight hours in 24-hour period. And if you don't get enough of that sleep, what you're having is you're developing what we call as sleep debt. So if somebody is getting six hours or five hours, they're accumulating sleep debt, which is going to affect their executive functioning, their memory, their concentration, physical ability, cause them to have more irritability. But you got to have to pay that sleep debt sooner or later. It is difficult to pay a whole week's of sleep debt on the weekend. However, it's better than nothing. So my advice would be to try to catch up, say, synchronize yourself to a time, take some naps during the daytime. If a mother whose baby is sleeping during the daytime, maybe synchronize it such that they can take a nap. Even if it's 30 to 40 minutes nap, that would still help better than nothing you can because you are paying off some of the sleep debt by doing that. What does good sleep look like? No, good sleep uh, depends on every person because if you look at uh, the need, human need, it ranges from six and a half to about eight hours on average. Some people are going to have fewer hours. Somebody may have more hours. But people, most people know what their sleep need is. The way to find out about it is that when we were, say, in our early 20s and we, we remember how, my, how many hours of sleep did we need. So, for example, I need about seven, seven and a half hours of sleep for sure. If I don't get that, I know I'm running on uh, short sleep. So good sleep is where you can easily fall asleep uh, at a proper time, whichever your sleep uh, circadian rhythm is, your sleep schedule is. And then your sleep is not very much interrupted, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you don't wake up in the middle of the night because some, you may wake up two or three times, sometimes even more, but then you go, as long as you're able to go back to sleep and then you wake up spontaneously, waking up with an alarm clock actually tells us that you are actually sleep deprived because you want to be able to wake up, had an, enough hours for sleep, your brain is not satisfied, you're going to wake up automatically and then you feel refreshed, you don't feel tired, you don't feel that your, your sleep is not giving you the energy, you should feel fresh. So th that is, that is, in my opinion, is good quality sleep. I know in my practice, I do some sleep hygiene education, and it includes talking about electronics and devices and caffeine use. Do you have any words of wisdom for new parents trying to get the best quality of sleep, basically on demand? Caffeine is not never going to help with sleep. It is it can increase stress. It can also cause more difficulty for falling asleep. Now, in some instances where we recommend drinking caffeine for somebody who's sleep deprived is instances where somebody is working late hours and they have to work or they have, they have to drive. It is okay to take caffeine to counteract the effects of sleep deprivation. That is if they're feeling so sleepy. But in general, avoiding caffeine is a good idea, especially in the afternoon, after you may have somebody likes coffee, tea, they can have it during the daytime early, like in the morning or 
early afternoon. But later than that, what happens is that it stays in your system and it can really uh, fragment your sleep. So I think uh, avoiding caffeinated beverages is a good idea. Uh, if somebody is not getting enough hours of sleep, taking small naps are actually better. For example, taking half an hour nap is better than taking an hour and a half nap because when you take a nap, which is hour and a half, then the brain ends up getting into more deep sleep and there, there is more sleep inertia. So if you're going to wake up from that, you may be even more tired or sleepy. So taking a nap, maybe 30 minutes is a better idea, 30 to 35, 40 minutes. How can we tell new parents to decide if they're just sleep deprived because of the new baby or if there's really an underlying sleep disorder? Well, in general, uh, if, if they know how many hours of sleep they're getting, so if they know that they're not getting the amount which they used to get and they're having some symptoms of fatigue, tiredness, that is secondary to sleep deprivation because uh, sleep disorder, is they're not going to have symptoms. If they, if uh, say, for example, if they didn't have sleep apnea, for example, uh, they're not going to just start having symptoms of sleep apnea at the birth of a baby. So if they're generally healthy, they didn't have any problems. And now after they have a baby, they're having problems with sleep. It's most likely because of uh, secondary to sleep deprivation from having to take care of the baby. Now, there are so many other sleep disorders, for example, sleep apnea, restless legs, chronic insomnia. People suffer from insomnia, but that sometimes that can happen. Yes, you have a point where uh, say a mother who has a baby and now you, there, she has to take care of the baby, but because she has to wake up, she has to be somewhat hypervigilant to take care of the baby. Now she has developed insomnia, which means that even if she wants to sleep and even if there's time and the baby's sleeping, she cannot fall asleep. So that those kind of stresses often can trigger insomnia type complaints or insomnia and such. So you really want to understand if you're sleeping really well before and now you're not able to sleep uh, because of the baby, that's sleep deprivation from it. But now if you can't sleep, despite the fact the baby is sleeping, you may have developed some insomnia because it's very common. There's statistically an increase in restless leg syndrome and sleep apnea for pregnant women. The sleep apnea because of the weight gain and the estrogen causes the body to have soft tissue swelling and then restless legs. Peritone deficiency because of the volume. So you're absolutely right. So obstructive sleep apnea is very common. Actually, I'm co-editing a book on sleep disorders in women. And then one of the chapters were written, it's going to be written by a faculty at UT Southwestern is restless legs and also sleep apnea. So in sleep apnea, there's more retention of fluid. So there's more retention, there's more body weight. If a pregnant woman is sleeping, especially from their back, it tends to increase the fluid around the neck. The neck size goes up, it becomes more, the opening becomes more narrow. As a result, there's more risk of obstructive sleep apnea. As far as a restless legs is concerned, yes, you're absolutely right. In pregnancy, women have increased restless legs. And generally, after they give birth, restless legs tend to get better in most cases. Now, the explanation, there are different explanations. One of them is that there is lack of ferritin because of the overall volume enlargement, there's lack of ferritin when they're pregnant and when they, the baby is born, the volume goes back to normal. I think the ferritin, ferritin levels tend to get back to normal, but this is just one explanation, but we know that in pregnancy, they have a lot more restless legs. When I've referred people for sleep studies during pregnancy, I've been met with some resistance. Any words to overcome the lack of desire to test? No, it is uh, in general because uh, 
most of the time when we do sleep studies, it's mostly to look at uh, uh, sleep apnea in general. For restless legs or for insomnia, we don't need to do a sleep study. Sleep apnea can be more common in pregnant women, but most of the time it is more cumbersome for them to, if they have sleep apnea, to really use a CPAP. But I think there shouldn't be any reason why we should not do sleep studies in women because we know that there is association of obstructive sleep apnea in pregnancy and preeclampsia and increased blood pressure. So if a woman has a sleep apnea, it should be still treated. Granted that once the baby is born, weight is going to go back to normal. She may not have sleep apnea, but during the time, if she, she, she has sleep apnea, it should ideally be treated. So there shouldn't be any reason why a sleep study is not, should not be done during pregnancy. Do you have any resources that you're fond of that speak to sleep training kids and babies? You know, I think the National Sleep Foundation has a very good website. Uh, there are a lot of resources over there. In addition to that, if you go to American Academy of Sleep Medicine website, there's going to be some resources over there as well. Any last minute tips for the time change coming up and trying to adjust our sleep schedules and circadian rhythms? Sure. So we're going to lose an hour. Most like people, with the exception of maybe Arizona, I believe that they don't change their time. Uh, we are going to lose some uh, one hour. And, uh, and actually, there are some studies which show that during this time, there's a spike in heart attacks when people lose an hour of sleep suddenly. So generally, we recommend that we, we try to train our body to be able to uh, go to sleep. Uh, uh, we sometimes can take some melatonin now uh, because we want to be able to advance our sleep phase, meaning we want to go to sleep earlier. Now, it is not that easy to do that. You can always delay your sleep onset. So during the fall, when we have to we, we gain an hour, it's easy to delay it. But when we are losing an hour, it's bet better to try to sleep a little bit earlier, maybe three or four days before. But often, uh, if that's not uh, possible, one could take a very small amount of melatonin, maybe a milligram or a half a milligram, just a couple of days before you're going to lose that uh, time. So for example, if it is going to be, I don't remember when that is going to be, when, whenever that Sunday is going to be two or three days before, if a person starts taking melatonin, one milligram, maybe set 7 p.m. or something, it may start helping them sleep a little bit earlier, maybe like 15, 20 minutes or half an hour every day. And by the time it, the, the, the Sunday comes, then they, they'd be kind of retrain their brain to sleep a little bit early so they can fall asleep early. So they're not having a sudden shock of losing sleep. Do you have any comments on using melatonin on a nightly basis? So melatonin is, is a good uh, chronobiotic, which means that it helps with changing this timing of sleep. It's not the best or the greatest uh, hypnotic as such. So, so much so it's not even approved as a hypnotic, except in European countries, I think. But if you, if somebody wants to take melatonin, if, if it is helping without any side effects, without any uh, grogginess in the morning, I don't think there's any long-term effects of that. I mean, some of the side effects could be some nightmares and stuff like that. However, I don't think there's any long-term effects as long as we are not taking a lot high doses. But what I've seen in clinical practice is a lot of times because melatonin is very readily available, people take five milligrams, 10 milligrams, sometimes 20 milligrams. And what that does is it, it may have some hypnotic effect, but then there's a huge surge of melatonin in the system, which kind of uh, offsets the natural peak of melatonin. And when that happens, it kind of messes up the sleep cycle. So they may have more problems. 
So taking very high doses of melatonin is not a good idea for that particular reason. Do you have any suggestions on a nightly dosage that would be acceptable? So I would suggest maybe up to two to three milligrams. One should not take more than that. Thank you so much for your time and your advice. For more information on the resources that Dr. Kwaja mentioned, please see the description of this podcast.